0: Now there's nothing that's going to surpass if the Lord Jesus Christ
1: will confess your name and my name before his Father. Welcome to Truth Matters Church and our expository study through the Book of Revelation. Today we conclude our look at Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis, digging into his comment about the few who have not soiled their garments and instead will be clothed in white. Here is Pastor Alex Kataroja verse 4 he goes but you have a few people in sardis
0: who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy he says you have a few oligos you have a few people oligos is the same word used in the narrow and wide gate's judgment. We're all familiar with that when Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are a few, there are oligos who find it. By just this statement alone, sadly, the majority of people enter into the wide gate that doesn't lead to life. And sadly, it's going to include those who profess Christianity, who identify, that's a big word now, right? Who identify as a Christian. Many will be on the path of the wide gate, which leads to destruction. Because there's only a few who actually, the oligos, who find it. So he says, but you have a few people in Sardis. So out of Sardis, using that as kind of a comparative example. The majority of them are dead. They they appear to be alive. But when Jesus, remember when he walked among the seven lampstands and he assessed each and every one of these churches, he's like, this church in Sardis, the majority of you are dead, but there are a few, there are a few who have not soiled their garments. Confirming the point earlier, one cannot be called dead and saved, and we know that that's a contradiction. So he says, but there are a few who have not soiled their garments. And he says, They will walk with me in white. Have not soiled their garments. What does that mean? So have not is in the negative participle, meaning it hasn't happened yet. Up to that point, when he says, they have not soiled their garments. Whatever that means, at that point in time when Jesus made that assessment and this letter was delivered, and this was read to the church in Sardis, to the to the church there. At that point in time, there was a few at that point in time, negative participle, they, it hasn't happened. They haven't soiled their garments, meaning for the others, they have soiled their garments, the, mo- the majority of them. Soiled is maluno, and it means to, stale or, to stain or defile. So the soiled their garments, melino, meluno, maluno. it means to stain or defile their garments. And depending on context, it can speak of defilement of conscience or it could speak of defilement with actual women. And I'll give us an example of that of when at least uh, Meluno is spoken of as conscience in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7. Paul says there, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled, is Maluno. Meluno. So when Jesus says they have not soiled their garments, soiled or defiled their garments or stained their garments, depending on the context, that could mean your conscience or it can actually mean you soiled your garments, you defiled yourself with women. So um, we looked at one example where it was speaking about the conscience and now we'll look at another example where it is speaking of women and it's in this very book in Revelation 14. And this is speaking of the 144,000 sealed Jews. Speaking of them, verse 4, These are the ones who have not defiled, who have not melunothed with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Here, the 144,000 sealed Jews did not defile themselves with women. In other words, the 144,000 Jews, this specific group of people, they did not engage in sexual immorality and did not engage in sex with temple prostitutes. This kind of gives us a little insight into this prophecy. There's going to be temple prostitution, probably rampant, and here the 144,000 sealed Jews have not defiled Melunah with women. So my question is, when Jesus says, but the few in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, is he speaking about their conscience or their clothing? Because you'll read some commentaries, they'll just say, yep. You know, like the woman, you know, the world, the lusts, you're just kind of over-spiritualizing everything. Well, what, was, what did Jesus have in mind here when he said, have not soiled their garments? Was he talking about the few in Sardis didn't defile their mind? Or did he talk about defiling their clothes? I'll give you a clue. It's in the verse. Garments tells us it was not he was not talking about their conscience. You're like, wait a minute, wait. But I'm sure we've all heard something about garments and us being clothed in white robes that somehow there is some spiritual symbolism here. So garments just can also mean, you know, something that's not physical. Well, garments is hemation. And it refers to an article of clothing, whether it's a cloak, a coat, a dress, a garment, a robe, etc. And guess what? You know garment, what it means in Scripture 100% of the time? Garment. So why is it all of a sudden here, we're going to say, oh, it doesn't really mean your actual physical clothing. It's, it's spiritual. Well, on what basis are, are, are you arguing that? Where in Scripture was garments used figuratively only? No, look at look at himation. 100% of the time it refers to clothing. So we're we're going to follow our rules of engagement. This was number 7 that we set up before. We're not going to over-spiritualize the text. Garments is something they wore. So here's the deduction. There was a few in Sardis who did not engage in sexual immorality. There was temple prostitution going on there. And they didn't defile their clothing. Now, This is where, okay, we can get practical here. If you sleep with a prostitute, your bodily fluids gets exchanged. Where does it go on your clothing? You have soiled your garment with women. In this case, a temple prostitute. So there were a few in Sardis who did not engage with the temple prostitutes, quite literally, while the majority did. And you know, that actually speaks about... I mean, I'm sure even in Christianity today, we can explain away sleeping with prostitutes. Well, if you're sleeping with prostitutes, you are no different than the majority here in Sardis because they've defiled their clothing. But for the few who haven't, this is what Jesus promises. He goes, they will walk with me in white. Now, this is one of the many promises in these seven letters. They, they will walk with me in white. They... In context, are the few Sardis who did not engage in sexual immorality. He says, will walk, is another way to say it. it's, it's a manner of conduct, a manner of life. So to walk with Jesus, when we say, hey, I want to walk with Christ, to walk with Jesus is to walk with the one who is holy, righteous, and pure. Now for us as, as followers of Christ, could you imagine walking next to the holy one, the righteous one, and the pure one? And But one of the promises is you, yeah, you and me, who have faith in him. This would, you know, first of all, as we learn in Scripture, when it comes to the promises, it's more in you know, context, it's applicable to the audience, but the promises applies to all believers. But the promise here is that the few, and this would extend to us ultimately, will walk and talk with Jesus, and we will walk as he walks, as holy righteous and pure so to walk with the risen lord is a blessing and salvation if we were to walk alongside our lord and savior and he receives us that is a blessing and salvation so here's the universal truth we will hit these as we kind of come across these letters so this doesn't only apply to the believers or the few in sardis if you resist satisfying the lusts of the flesh and you do not engage in sexual immorality, you will be rewarded to walk along with the glorified Jesus in white. Let me ask us a rhetorical question Can you live in sexual immorality and then expect yourself to walk with the risen, holy, righteous Son of God? Now, as far as in white, he says, They will walk with me in white. I'm not going to get too deep into this. But in this book, there were white garments, there was a white horse, there's white robes, there's a white cloud, there's white linen. And last but not least, there was the great white throne. White in short is speaking of purity and righteousness. So in context, it is referring to the white garments as said in verse 5. So let's look there. The promise continues. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So consistent in all of the seven letters is the assessment, but with the ending of a promise. And when we get to the promises, it applies, as I mentioned, to the immediate audience, the few and sardis, but it is also universal. And how do we know that? How do we know that... This promise that he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments isn't just limited to the few in Sardis. Because it says he who overcomes, and when we take other scripture, let's take John's other epistle, 1 John 5, 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you believe and you overcome, that would include you. You will be clothed in white garments. That would include all believers of all time. So, in verse five, and in all seven letters, any promise mentioned is not limited to just the immediate audience, but it applies to all believers for all time. Because when we take scripture with scripture, and this is what, and I, and I, I can understand the complexity of Revelation. Because as I mentioned before, sometimes we're getting into the context, we're understanding everything, and next thing you know, woo, we go right to the end, and then we come right back, and we're like, and we're in the middle. And we're like where does it apply to us well if it's a promise connected with his return and our reward then we are included in that that would be all believers in all time i want to get to an application because that's that's a lot but what's an application in verse five all believers who resisted indulging the sinful lusts and passions of the flesh will walk with jesus and be clothed in white, So that's a promise. Isn't that not what Paul said? You know, it just, it just hit me. Did he says, do not be deceived. He goes, neither fornicators, adulterers, drunkards, you know, those who are sexually immoral will inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying the same thing here. So if you're a believer and you're resisting the sinful lusts and passions of the flesh, because your heart and your desire is to walk with Jesus and to be clothed in white and to receive this promise, then this promise would apply to us. But here's here's my question for us. What if you're a professed Christian and you have done this? Or you're still doing this? Don't listen to me. Listen to Christ. He commands you to stop. Stop. Or else. Now, I'm not going to get into this eternal security right at this point in time. I'm not going to get into that. But it does bring to question if you're living a sexually immoral life actively and you're saying, well, I'm going to plead the blood of Jesus over that. Well, Jesus could have just said that to the the most in Sardis. And he goes, no, you've sold your garments. He goes, you better wake up or else I'm about to come about you. You better repent. You better stop. So if someone is an active, sexual, living a active sexually immoral life, I genuinely question that you have the Spirit of God in you. I genuinely question that. I'm not saying you're not going to make mistakes. I'm not saying you're not going to backslide. But if you're an active and Jesus is saying stop, or else I will come upon you like a thief. Whew. Trust me, no trust Scripture. When Jesus comes like a thief. There's going to be a lot in the Christian church living a sexually immoral life and they will be taken like a thief in the night. This is serious stuff. You're like, wait a minute. That's not the gospel that I've heard or, or was taught. I'm, I'm, giving it, I'm giving it to you straight from the, Lord, the lips of our Lord here. This is from His lips. I'll leave it there. If you're living an active, sinful life, stop. Remember. Remember. What you've heard and received, pursue Christ again with your life. How you live, your that should be a former way of life. Didn't Paul describe believers? That was your former way of life in which you formerly walked. But if that's you now, I yeah, you better question. But like, oh, well, um, I said this prayer. Um, I wrote it down. I said it on this date, and right, one saved, all of us saved, right? I go, I go, I go uh, just being. Frank here, so I won't be Alex, I'll be Frank. There you go. Okay, so your soul, which is more precious than anything in this world, your very being, your very existence, you're going to go all in on just going through this formula and saying the right words and saying, okay, Lord, remember this back in this date on you know this month, this day, and this year, I accepted you into my heart even though I lived in immorality and I lived the way I wanted to live. Like, it's really the audacity. No, it doesn't work, it doesn't work that way. And what we're finding with Christianity, um, at least when it, and also when it comes to the full counsel of God, yeah, there, there's more to it. Yeah, we, no, don't, don't get me wrong, and please don't, don't take this any other way. You know, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm not going, oh, oh, you know, I'm not going against that, that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous before God, and we can't work to keep our salvation. That scripture is crystal clear. That doesn't, however, negate the responsibility of what we do with our life. It doesn't negate that. We are engaged in it. We are involved in the sanctification process. And I've mentioned this probably well, way back before. How many of us have heard the phrase, let go and let God? Don't. Sanctification isn't a passive process. Sanctification is an active participation of your will. What did Peter say? If it is hard for the household of God, right, and for the righteous to be saved, he goes, that's hard. You don't get salvation by just skating through. You're like, wow, because I have this sin in me, I have these you know, impulses, I have these passions and desires, I have this pride in me, I have this anger, I have whatever. we, we got to continue to keep that in check. That's hard, because it's easier just to let it out right no christianity it's about us participating in that sanctification like n- repenting and that continual repentance i can't think like that i can't act like that i need to i need to be more loving i need to you know pursue god those are good things but we're not relying on those things to accept for us to be accepted but those are good virtues we're trusting completely on the finished work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on that cross, right? And Him dying for all our sins and Him rising from the dead and Him ascending back to the Father and Him coming back. We put our faith and we rest in that. But we still are trying to work this out. Well, are you still with me? Now let's look at verse 5 because we're going to open up another can of worms. He says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So not only will believers be clothed in white garments, but Jesus promises, I will not erase his name, his enoma, from the book of life. Do I need to preach to the choir here? You're a believer in Jesus Christ? You are eternally saved. I know it kind of sounds counter to what I just said earlier. No, but if you're a true believer, there was a true new birth in your heart that was a, a work of God, a mercy and a grace of God that happened in your heart and you believed, Jesus promises that he won't erase your name from the book of life. You are eternally saved. Now here, some might struggle with verse five because it might seem to imply that Jesus can erase your name meaning one can lose his or her salvation. So I, I want to say this. Being in the Word is, and, and in depth as we try to be, I come up against Scripture where I, I know the struggle. they are like, wow, so if the few in Sardis don't repent and they have unfinished deeds? <clears throat> but does this also mean that because He told the few, and this would apply for, you know, for believers, that he will not erase their name from the book of life? Does that imply that he can erase your name from the book of life? Well, I'll say this, and I'm not going to make a complete defense because Scripture is clear. Scripture affirms eternal security. Once saved, always saved. And I don't want to say just because Scripture says one thing, it doesn't mean that the, uns- the unsaid is the other thing. So let me give us an example. I'll give us an example. And some of us might have thought this. Now the scripture is clear for those of us who are in Christ, you are chosen by God the Father, period. When you come to Christ and you respond in faith, it is because God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world that you might be holy and blameless before him. Scripture is clear. The elect have already been determined. And I've mentioned this kind of imagery or this kind of illustration. God the Father did his family planning in advance. So someone might think, "Oh, because God chose certain people to be saved, and let's call them the elect, that must mean that Jesus chose or God the Father chose people to go to hell." Now let me ask you on that second point. Does scripture support that God chose people for destruction? Well, he didn't choose them for destruction. They became objects of destruction because of their disobedience and their sin. So let me say it this way. The scripture teaches that God chose who will be saved. And we know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But that's all by God the Father. Someone might think that means that God chose people to go to hell. No, the scripture doesn't teach this part. That's called double predestination. Double predestination. To use a term, the Scripture doesn't uphold double predestination. The Scripture upholds the election part, but as far as those who are damned into destruction is because they are ungodly and refuse to repent and heed the words of God through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. People are damned because of their unbelief, because they reject the gospel, because they refuse to believe. That's what the scripture teaches. So with that, this holds true in verse 5. You might think, oh, he says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. If your mind goes, well, then that means he can erase your name or he will erase your name. That's not what it said. He said it in the positive. So just because he said that I will not erase, Jesus says he won't erase, doesn't mean that he will erase people from the book of life. Because here's my question. If If you're kind of thinking that, you jesus can't erase people's name from the book of life where in scripture does it say that the elect who are written in the book of life in god's heavenly registry have subsequently got removed besides this one statement here well i couldn't find any i find the opposite is true so all that is to say we have to be careful also with our deductions just because you know one is you know is is clearly true doesn't mean that the opposite logic is always the case in this case there is no other examples in scripture where a elect person chosen by God the Father lost their salvation. So when you get to verse five and we study this, because some who hold that view will go, this will be one of their verses. See, look, he says he will not, he will not erase their name, meaning they can. Well, no, don't inject what wasn't written. He just said it in on one side and leave it there. But let's look at verse five. We'll look at the last part. He says, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So not only will believers walk with Jesus clothed in white garments, not only will believers um, have their names, uh, not have their names erased from the book of life, but Jesus will also confess his name before his father and before his angels. As far as that goes, if the Lord Jesus Christ were here, and let's just say his Father's throne is also in the vicinity, and he were to acknowledge and confess your name before his Father, there's no greater privilege than that. I mean, we might somewhat relate with that. And, you know, let's say there was someone who might be important in the world, at least by the world standards. Let's say it's just someone who's famous. And if they were to acknowledge you, you'd feel pretty special, wouldn't you? If little O U you was recognized by someone who's up there, now there's nothing that's going to surpass if the Lord Jesus Christ will confess your name and my name before His Father. Did you catch it says before His angels? Who's His? Let's take a step back. You know all of the angels, the holy angels? They're the Father's angels. They're like, wait, but Jesus has the seven angels or the seven stars of the angel, seven angels in his right hand and also the seven spirits. He has authority over them. But remember what we've learned? First of all, when we looked at heaven and the throne, whose throne was it? The Father. Jesus doesn't have a throne in heaven. The Father has a throne. You're like, wait a minute, wait. But my, one of, some of the songs I sing teach about Jesus sitting on his throne. I go, oh, you might want to rethink that. The throne in heaven belongs to god the father jesus has authority to sit on his father's throne and those who overcome he will allow to sit on his throne on earth just as he has authority he has authority to sit on his father's throne so his angels the holy angels they're the fathers but who has he given the authority to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore God the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, whether things in heaven or on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the exaltation of Christ, the Father gave all of his authority except the Father, the Father, but all of the other authority that the Father has, He gave it to His Son, and that would include the authority of the angels. And that's why Jesus is the one who has the seven stars in His right hand, and He says this. And the one that has the seven spirits before God, who's calling the shots? Who's, who's, who's been delegated the authority right now? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the one that was found worthy to take the seal from Him who sits on the throne? That's another point. That's the father's throne. Jesus was the lamb that was slain, that was before the throne, and he was the one that was found worthy to take the scroll with seven seals from his father. And he started, and once he'd taken it, what did everyone do in heaven? And we're going to see, they're going to bow before the lamb. Starts with the father, and he delegated the authority, including the privileges and honor of being worshiped as the son of God was from his father. It's his angels. See those little things. And let's go to verse 6. So he who has an ear, he ends this letter. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I've said this. would be a broken record. When we read that, we're like, okay, that's just a, a fancy phrase. To end a letter. No, it's a call to repent and obey or else. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a warning. Hear it. Heed it. And if you're not in the right, you're not you know, walking in faith or walking in obedience, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Repent and remember and pursue Christ. And we know that the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is saying these admonitions to the churches. And let us not forget, it is also written to the angel who was tasked over the church in Sardis. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is also warning by the Holy Spirit to that angel over that church that the one who has the authority of all heaven and earth will one day cast you into the lake of fire for your active and open rebellion of my Father. So that takes us to the end of this letter. Now we're five down, two to go. We'll get there. And I mentioned this before. Once we pass these letters to the seven churches, I'll sum it all up at the end. It's going to pretty much, it's going to pick up because we're going to start getting into the scene and the vision in heaven and what's going on, and the intensity will pick up. And um, a lot of us will come away with heavy hearts because what's coming up, what's in store for this earth, uh, it's not very pretty. Uh, So the Book of Revelation, it's a book of warning to the ungodly and to the world, but it's also a book of promises and reward
1: for those who are waiting for that day for Him to appear in the sky. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much for listening today to Truth Matters Church. Join us next time as we begin studying Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia, one of the two churches in Revelation to receive only commendation from our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've missed any part of our study so far, you can find all of them archived at our website, truthmatterschurch.org, or simply search for us on Sermon Audio. And consider joining us for our study in person or online every Friday night. You can find out more at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time, this is Truth Matters Church.